this is Chris Mother Speed Podcast, where we discuss black LGBT issues and topics. And my guest today, history professor and author of the book we are discussing today, Not Straight, Not White, that examines the lives of both black gay activists, both famous and little known, in telling an overlooked history of black gay men who were both inspired and marginalized through movements for social change. Please welcome Mr. Kevin Mumford. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Glad to talk to you. All right. I'm very glad to talk to you, too. I'll be honest with you. I'm a, I'm a big history fan. I love history. And one thing about uh, the gay history was something I, I never really truly explored myself, but I always wanted to kind of find more books about it. I know I've seen some things pertaining to art, uh, the, the art movement, but definitely one of those things pertaining to just history and the social activists was something else of an interest to me, and I'm sure it's going to be an interest for the fans. Well, can you tell me a little bit in terms of why did you write this book? Well, uh, first of all, I am uh, a black gay historian, and um, I realized after writing two books that there still wasn't much material on intersection of gay history and African-American history, and particularly um, about black gay politics. And uh, so I was lucky enough to win um, a uh, national endowment for the Humanities Fellowship at the Schomburg Library, world-famous um, collection of African-American and African archival materials up in Harlem. And from there, I started to research the life of a black gay activist named Joseph Beaton. And I originally thought I would start to work on just his biography. And it kind of just spiraled out from there. And I found much more material uh, figures uh, issues than I had than I had expected. Now, I definitely see that it was definitely well-received. Um, how are people how are people actually receiving the book here? It looks like on, on several yeah, other resources. It's really exciting, actually. Um, I mean, I, you know, there was, there was a moment when I was finishing the manuscript and I had a workshop, which is... Um, uh, uh, eight or eight or nine of my colleagues read it, and we all came together and talked about it. And from there, there was just a lot of enthusiasm, um, and so I gained a lot of confidence. And I knew that I, w- I was on to something. I figured that it would have a pretty good audience, and it has. Actually, I've gotten very lucky in the sense that it's been a finalist for several several awards. Congratulations! Um, yes, yes, it won an award from the American Library Association. Wow. Um, and it's up for the Lambda. I don't know if your audience knows the Lambda Literary Awards, but it's kind of like the most prestigious awards um, in LGBT. They, they honor fiction and nonfiction. Wow, wow. Congratulations on that. Wow. <laughs> so this has been a good a good little ride for you, definitely when it comes to uh, this piece of history. Did you find that a lot of some of your some of your white counterparts also find it very surprising in terms of what you found? I think uh, yes. I think that um, white, well, LGBT studies um, is overwhelmingly uh, an overwhelmingly white field, and most of the subjects, um, whether it's movements or individual actors, are white. And so, I think pretty much everything in the book comes as something of a surprise to mainstream LGBT scholars. Um, I mean, in the first part of the book, I do talk about more well-known figures such as Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin, but much of the book really is about 
about um, lesser-known activists. Okay. Uh, people that are not people that are were important for their time, but have not really been written about. And when you found that, what uh, what type of because I normally this is what I normally find. I normally find uh, that of those who are a little bit older, who definitely remember, you know, those times or either actually kind of know some information, they seem to be a little bit more interested. Are you getting a lot of younger audience who are also kind of appealing to the book or, or looking for this information? Yes. I mean, one of the things I was hoping for in the book was to try to make the writing more accessible. Um, some of LGBT studies, particularly queer studies, is very um, theoretical, and they have a lot of debates that are operated at that level of sort of high theory, literary theory, cultural theory. And I kind of made a, a decision, kind of a deliberate move, to keep the prose straightforward, to tell stories, particularly biographical uh, stories, because I knew that younger students, particularly like undergraduates, would take to it, that they would, you know, be more entertained, um, and that also there were stories of lives that they would be able to identify with. Um, people who had to negotiate their religion and their sexual identity, uh, had to figure out how to, um, how to, how to figure, uh, how to work with family, uh, and, and fit in in communities, um, uh, and also, for example, one chapter talks about a black activist who was, um, you know, trying to go to school and trying to go to graduate school and, uh, and yet was sort of in the closet and that was very, you know, very difficult for him. So, um, yeah, I guess I was hoping to make it accessible and also to relate to a younger generation of both black and white students. Um, uh, about what it meant for these men to kind of negotiate the intersection of rape and sexuality. What did you find most surprising? Uh, one of the things that was surprising was how important uh, religion was. I mean, as a scholar of African American history, uh, I know that the black church and religion have been crucial um, in slavery, uh, to foster community, um, in certainly in the civil rights movement, many leaders were religious leaders in local communities. The churches would be places where um, people would meet and, and um, construct strategy for demonstrations. But I hadn't imagined how important, I hadn't really predicted how important faith would be in this story. Um, certainly James Baldwin, um, you know, would have alerted us to that because he, all of his works deal with on some level, questions of faith and um, spirituality. But I also found, for example, an activist who, um, right after he graduated from high school, went into um, the, a Catholic order called the Order of Salvatorians, which was based in Milwaukee. Okay. And they were dedicated, yeah, I mean, they were dedicated to social service, uh, to chastity, um, and to advocacy for social justice. And, um, and so he was very important in the, in the 1970s, trying to reconcile his faith with his commitment to gay liberation. And so he really identified himself as 
the first or as a major advocate of what he called black gay liberation uh, in the 1970s. Wow, wow. Well, let me ask you, I mean, why don't many people know about this history? Is it something that was really uh, suppressed on with with purpose from the different parts, or, or why? Well, that's a great question. In some ways, uh, I think, on the one hand, LGBT studies, which is still relatively new, although it's exploded, so it's become, um, you know, there are just more and more panels at conferences and you know, every gender studies department worth its own, you know, worth its salt has somebody who specializes in uh, gay and lesbian history. Um, but again, those departments and scholars are overwhelmingly white, and they just, you know, you go to school and you start to specialize in, you know, certain fields, and they can kind of, they, I think in reality, they don't study African-American history. Right. especially by the time they were in graduate school. So they just sort of missed the connections between uh, LGBT history and African-American history. Right. And, you know, on the other side, the kind of canon of African-American studies is pretty traditional. And so many scholars who are aware of someone like James Baldwin, that's one thing, but to kind of branch out and think about black gay novelists, including them in the canon, or thinking about the connections between the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement, that's hard. That's a harder sell, I found, when I talk to my colleagues in African American studies. They tend to have sometimes pretty traditional ideas about what social movements are and what counts as a civil right uh, and what counts as, you know, sort of legitimate. And oftentimes there's a certain level of resistance or even homophobia in traditional African-American studies communities. Wow. Wow. So really in many, many cases we've just kind of ignored it but because of those because of those particular cultural beliefs we just kind of said push it to the side. Because I even I remember someone telling me um, when it came down to I think the last Million Man March um it was it was a kind of a deal to even get someone to of African American descent who happened who was also gay to even speak. It was kind of an issue. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, the presence of Louis Farrakhan, who was sort of you know very conservative and outspoken, um, and then just right a very uh, traditional um, conception of of black. You know, black masculinity um, and kind of respectability they often sometimes you know I think unwittingly they just sort of um, marginalize gay you know gay men gay uh, the expression of gayness that um, especially I think in public politics there is a tendency to want to put a unified singular face of blackness okay. and um, there, there, uh, there's a very famous scholar, Kathy Cohen, who wrote a book on AIDS and black politics. And one of the arguments that she makes, that I think is right, is that it's not, you know, the African-American political communities aren't intrinsically homophobic. It's just that they tend to be, they tend to want to organize around a single identity. And anybody who kind of challenges that 
or, or trying to pluralize that often gets a lot of pushback. Right. And yeah, so um, I think that's, you know, to some extent, I think that's still the case. I think that, you know, uh, I wrote a paper recently called Black Gay Lives Matter, where I talk about, you know, there's a long tradition of trying to, um, of black gay men trying to be represented, be taken as uh, humane and human um, to, you know, have respect in the public sphere. Um, and even today, I think there's a, there's a problem of invisibility, um, which I think is really, uh, which I, which as I argue in the book, is very problematic in terms of self-esteem. That one of the things uh, a number of my activists are pushing for is kind of self-respect um, and recognition that, you know, they too are contributing, we too are contributing. And that's really important, I think, in terms of staying safe, right? right. Like, um, you know, the alarming persistence of uh, men of color converting to HIV. Um, and I think part of that has to do with not being included in communities that where there's a lot of awareness about safe sex and prevention, right? Right. You know, I th- you know I was actually reading some of the some of the ab- abstracts from your book, and one of them I was looking at mm-hmm. uh, the limits of liberation. And uh, just reading this ab- abstract real, real quick: in the era of black and gay liberation, activists attempted to forge coalitions that only temporarily provided space for black gay men. The Black Panthers' fleeting support gay causes, while relatively few black men joined gay liberation fronts. But the beginnings of a new black gay activism were visible. Now, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know. I really didn't know that uh, some of the Black Panthers actually participated in that. But you also mentioned something of Malcolm X. I think you mentioned something Uh about that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's been an ongoing controversy around uh, Malcolm X. And it's kind of interesting, when I write about it in the book, is I don't try to answer the question, I just sort of observe how controversial it's been, how the back and forth and the fight over Malcolm X has been, and trying to figure out why, what's at stake in his sort of defenders. And the controversy goes back to uh, a biography that was written uh, in the early 80s by Bruce Perry where he had found evidence that in the late 1940s before he went to prison Malcolm was kind of a hustler and people had known that he was in the sort of bebop scene that he was kind of a low level um, you know sort of a criminal he had some theft issues (laughs) Uh, anyways um but that he also had performed uh, massages on men for um, a price, so there was a kind of low-level hustler prostitution. Gotcha. And there was there was a lot of pushback on this idea that Malcolm could possibly have been bisexual. Um, lots of controversy. People, um, 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 you know, quite seriously criticized the Perry biography. And it resurfaced again when Manning Marable uh, published his Pulitzer Prize-winning biography um, in, I I think, around 2003-2004. And he confirmed Perry's findings. Uh, He found um, a a letter from uh, 
the evidence that this homosexual had visited Malcolm in jail, that Malcolm wrote him a letter and planned to stay with him once he was uh, released, so that there was a you know a sense in which um, he was relying on him as a kind of as a as a kind of source of stability. Yes. Ultimately, of course, in prison, Malcolm uh, converts to Islam, and he when he comes out, he uh, joins Elijah Muhammad. But there is that clear evidence of connections with this sort of male suitor. You know, I'm, again, you know, definitely because the movies that, of course, did depicted some of his lies, etc., we definitely knew that he was involved in a lot of things. And, of course, when he gave his life to uh, Islam and just to, to be part of the movement, it, he definitely right. changed a lot of things. So, you know, I think a lot of people will definitely be aware of that. This little piece of history, maybe not so much, you know, that people were a little bit aware of. But right. I just, I just, yeah, and I wasn't trying to, like I said, come down one way or the other, but more trying to figure out why would even the possibility that Malcolm X was bisexual cause so much controversy that there was this idea, like, what was, what was at stake? Why is it so um, uh, alarming for so many people um, that, that this, you know, that this flirtation with homosexuality was such an issue? Yeah, you know, I guess people, you know, at least from my point of view, that some people actually uh, view him such a such an iconic figure to to even still his private life to even be even associated with it, especially what it stood for, how how much of a masculine person he projected himself and portrayed himself. You know, so it, a lot of those things I can definitely see comes into play. But you know, nonetheless, it was it was something that. Of a piece of a history note that most people probably would find uh, definitely surprising within your book. What was also, if you can also give me one more uh, person that you found that you really admired that really wasn't really known so much throughout history? There are things that I admire about uh, James King. Uh, and he's a much more controversial character in the book. As a well known. Uh, a leading researcher, uh, and he had gone to become a, uh, a professor at Howard University. Uh, and one reason, and he was he was a, a really a brilliant scholar. And when you look through his papers, the kinds of collections that he had on the black press uh, and African American religion were just you know astounding. All of his papers and. Uh, uh, he had a lot of fighting to do. I mean, to try to be in the Pentecostal church and be a, uh, an expert, and then to come out as gay, which he did in 1979, put him at odds with many institutions, certainly Howard University. It was not easy to be out in an HBCU. Um, eventually, he faced excommunication from the Pentecostal church for, for trying to advocate for the inclusion of lesbians. So, he was, you know, somebody who had a lot of crises around him in, in trying to reconcile his relationship to the black community uh, and to um, being gay. He's also um, unusual in that we don't know very much about his background, about his family, where, you know, other than to say that he was adopted and he grew up in a white family, but that he understood himself to be African-American, I mean, throughout his life, he made choices to become 
part of black institutions. Um, and then he went on to try to reconcile um, me coming out as gay and um, you know being part of these institutions. Wow. It's the, so definitely one thing's for sure that would be one part I would be love to would love to look into just kind of kind of more and the reason why because my entire family is Pentecostal and I know that religion so uh, I, right, right. <laughs> yeah yeah so you can't you can't imagine a harder a, a tougher fight yeah to try to. <laughs> oh yeah, and when, when you said that, I'm thinking, oh boy, I can just, I can just imagine that would be definitely one one great story for people to walk away with. If anything, I want people to be more aware of your book, not straight, not white. I'm not sure if we said it before. I want to make sure I said it as many times before. Um, so it gives a little piece of history that most of us really have no chance, really didn't have that much of a chance to really follow that much of because, well, it wasn't really put out there that much. So I want, I really appreciate you writing this book. And I want to put this book out there. I want to give you all the information as much as possible for some of the listeners to be able to go purchase the book on Amazon. Uh, to also follow you and some because you, you wrote several books. Is that correct? Yes, it's true. Uh, this is my third book. Um, I wrote a book on uh, Newark, New Jersey, and focusing particularly on the riots there. And um, it's kind of interesting because it's the 50th anniversary of the Newark riots this summer. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, they're having a, uh, a, a big symposium, it's a very exciting symposium um, at the new um, Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. So I'm going to be going to be speaking there in July. Awesome. And, um, yeah, and then my first book was about great migration um, and sexuality, uh, and it's called Inner Zones, uh, Black White Sex Districts in Chicago and New York in the early 20th century. So, uh, kind of returning to the sexuality my first there. You know, I definitely, uh, again, I do appreciate you coming on the show and just kind of giving people a little thing, a little bit of history that a lot of us just plainly didn't know. And I think this book would kind of do a lot of highlights and kind of give give a little bit more of those people who really uh, weren't really given much attention to uh, in history and kind of give their voice. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. And like I said, I'll definitely put all the information on the podcast so everyone's aware of it. And this is Chris with Brothers Speed Podcast, also with Mr. Mumford, Kevin Mumford. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thank you so much got to take a moment to give a big shout out to DJ Baker with the weekly top 40. It's the first LGBT urban countdown from artists from around the world. Tune in every single Saturday live from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. exclusively in all digitalradio.com. 